to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. We are going to be looking again at Matthew chapter 13. If you want to turn in your Bible there or open your device, we'll have some of the slides provided on the screen as well. So Matthew 13, and this is going to be verses 44 through 46. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the mainly focusing on um, the hidden treasure there, the, the parable of the hidden treasure. Um, Jesus connects um, these two parables, and Matthew connects these two purposely. Um, the, the pearl of great price. Um, very few parables have the same main point. Um, sometimes it may seem like that the parables have the same main point, um, but usually if you go a little bit deeper into it, there's actually, you know, like we, we've discussed in our interpretation, that, that it, it doesn't, it's not open to interpretation, meaning a hundred different people walk away with a hundred different um, interpretations of what the parable is actually about. Now, there can be levels of significance from that, but, but there's Jesus is teaching one main idea with each parable. And so we've got to be careful with that because some people have the mindset of like, well, it just means a whole bunch of different things. And, and, and then why would Jesus speak? If he, if he wasn't able to communicate what God wanted to say to the people, we don't really uh, realize what we're saying about God in that, that, well, you know, this meant something completely different for all these different people. Um, and so you didn't effectively communicate. And that, that's not the case with Jesus so we will be looking at that today. Um, so if you remember the, the first parable, Jesus had us consider the seed and the soil. So I wanted you to walk away with considering the seed. And so the seed is that, that gospel message, the word of God. He told us in that the seed is the word of God. And, and then you're, the soils, remember the four levels of soils. Um, and so the hardened heart and then the, the distracted heart. And uh, that was the third one. Um, the uh, hardened heart What's the second one. The um, uh, rocky ground, the, the shallow, um, not deep soil that where it sprung up quickly, and, and there were maybe even joy and affections, but then it, it quickly died away. And so he, he warned through that. And then the distracted heart. And then the fourth heart was the one, the good soil. Um, and we know that um, in that, that would be those he was saying, for, for you believers, um, those who receive this word with a humility. And so he was talking to those disciples and they kind of separated from the crowds. And then the next parable he went into was um, the parable of um, the weeds. And so if you have put your faith in Christ and now you're a follower of Christ, a believer, he wanted us to know that the weeds have been set there by an enemy. That as we live this life, as Christians in this world, it's a fallen world. And so we talked about those two ideas that some people have interpreted it, interpreted it as um, evil inside the church. So the state of the church, when actually it, it, it's really the state of the church in the world. Because Jesus said, the field is the world here. So believers, if you have received this word, if you are a follower of Christ... Expect for there to be evil. Expect, expect for there to be a fallenness all around you. How would you live this life out following Christ in a broken, fallen world? 
And so we're going to be thinking through um, this next one, um, the, the, the pearl of great price, but also the hidden treasure. But I, I wanted you to think through some of these things as we go through these. Um, here's some just questions. I think this is really helpful. Um, this is helpful evangelistically, uh, but this is helpful for your heart to consider. Um, how would you try to describe the kingdom of heaven? Just think through that. Like it could be family members, coworkers, people around your life, neighbors. How would you try to describe what we understand is the kingdom of heaven? The reason I say that, remember, we've learned a lot that it's the kingdom is here. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom down, God with us, Emmanuel, on the earth. But it's a fallen world, so it's not yet fully consummated. So the idea is the kingdom is here already, but not yet fully. So, so if, if, if for chance everyone in here was a believer, we've got the kingdom of God going on in here, and yet we walk outside and walk a couple of blocks over, and we go, man, it's not here fully, right? And so the kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully. And so that's what that last parable had talked about. There, there's evil all around you, believers. You're part of the kingdom. I'm the king, but you're going to be surrounded by things that are going to be contrasting that. So what, how would you describe the kingdom of heaven? What does the kingdom look like even corporately as we gather? That's a good thing to think through. A lot of times in our American Christianity, if you get around some good Bible teaching, it becomes me and my own quiet time. And I'm always the best Christian in there. I'm always the most loving, the most graceful, the most peaceful, the most merciful until all you other people come into my life. And then that's what makes it difficult, right? So you're always the best person in your quiet time. But corporately, how do we, how do we begin to flesh that out? What does the kingdom look like as a corporate body? Thinking through that, God's global purposes, putting these little pockets of what I like to call that faithful gospel presence. So even, even this church plant, particularly wanting to be in this little three or four mile area, there's not a lot of uh, the churches, a lot of the churches are trying to plant out at 121st and beyond. And so, hey, in this little area, a faithful gospel presence, what does that look like? Um, and so thinking through, what, what, do we, what do we live out the kingdom in our lives? And so um, what does the kingdom look like in your own personal life? Thinking through um, in your office, your workplace, in your home, is the gospel in your living room, the gospel in your home, as much as it is when you come to Sunday worship service? Or are you living out the gospel, trying to live and breathe and talk about the gospel at the dinner table? As you take trips, our, a lot of our time now is spent in cars traveling with the boys, and it's different conversations. It's not you know just like three little kids sitting in a living room, and you just tell them something, and they kind of parrot it back to you. They have their own independent... Thoughts now, shockingly, right? And so you go to this point where, now how do we talk about the kingdom with, with people who are um, being tempted in ways that they were not being tempted at nine years old and six years old? And now they're really getting to see there is evil out there. There's tempting things out there. How do we live out the kingdom in this kind of world? And so that, that, that's, a, that's a fun thing. Um, in your personal life, um, for you students at, at school and at class, just thinking through, would people think of me as one who's in the kingdom? Um, am I living out the type of life that reveals fruits that I'm a part of this kingdom, that, that I've surrendered my life to this king? And we're going to see that today. So just think through some of those. Um, how would you point to it? There, that, that right there, that's the kingdom working. And sometimes it's not just a great win and something easy. Sometimes it's brokenness and people moving in with compassion and mercy. It's a broken situation, and we move towards it. That's the kingdom. 
You would naturally want to go and help someone and show mercy and compassion, but that's the kingdom. Um, so, so beautiful things there. Um, so think through that. Um, that'll, be, that'll be good as you look at um, these parables that we go through. But I wanted you to think through that kind of evangelistically, think through that conversation, um, conversationally, to, to think through how could we talk about that. Um, some easy examples would be, because uh, people usually say, hey, this is an area that the church is usually weak in. Uh, how, how do they train and equip us? So it, it, it's easy to, if you have take lunch or you have lunch with people at your office or your workplace or you have people around you that you kind of feel like they're, maybe they're, they're not a growing Christian or they're lost. It could be friends. It could be people that are definitely lost, neighbors. And just to say, you know, you're in a conversation with someone and something happens and you can just, just insert a little Jesus thought of a parable. Yeah, you know, I know, I know what you mean, man. We've been going through kind of a, a, a rough time. And, and so, you know, one of the things that we just learned last week, and I've been reading through and seeing that, is Jesus actually told us that, man, to follow Christ in this world, there's going to be just these weeds that Satan has, has sown around us. There, there's going to be evil. There's going to be hurtful, fallen things. And he, in that, he was telling us that there's going to be a day where there is a harvest of righteousness for those who are believers. So, man, that's been re- really hitting me really hard, just thinking through that. Your neighbor who's lost may just be sitting there like, I don't think that way. I don't read. I don't, I don't hear Jesus. And you just inserted the gospel and made a paradigm shift in his life of, here's the line in the sand. And, and God can use that. And so just, just think through, you can use some of these, taking the main point of the parable and just opening that into conversation. So I challenge you to do that. Um, this parable, it brings up what is life? Even deeper than, than what are you living for? So we're going to see this. And so um, I usually don't do these. I hate when I do these, but I, I, this one is really fitting. Um, so, so if you're, you know, especially when you're visiting, you're like, oh, does he do like little props all the time? I love pastors who, who do a lot of stage props. That's a really big hit for me. So I'm joking. I, I don't like that a lot. But here is this. So I'm doing one today. And so um, if people start getting up and leaving, you'll know why. So if, if you were to take and go, hey, this is life. Like this is, this is representative of my life. We're going to use this long rope as an illustration, okay? So I did this at Tahlequah, by the way, in case you've seen the YouTube videos. Uh, I did this like two or three times, and then this you know, guy from Asia, Francis Chan, he doesn't, has like 11 million views. We had like 30 or 40 people coming to our college ministry. So I think he saw that, or he heard about that. We didn't have it online. But I'm, I, th- I think he heard about that and said, that's a great idea. I'm going to expand that for the kingdom. So if this was representative of your life, um, then you think through that. Now, if you're, if you're under 20, you may go, man, I think my life will be a lot bigger than that. Like, it, that's not quite as big as I would like it. But then if you're, if you're getting older, you probably are going like, oh, yeah, like that, that's a lot. And so as you sit there and you begin to think through, you know, what is life about? Um, thinking through this idea, what if the rope represented your life? Um, and like I said, if you're young, you think, well, that's not really big enough. But then if you're older, you probably are going, man, I don't know if this is really uh, all that life would be. Um, I don't know. I would want a life that long. As you get older, you're thinking about the value of life, how valuable life is. And also you begin to learn life is very short. So you get into your thirties and forties, especially your forties. And all of a sudden people your age, they start dropping off car wrecks, cancers, heart attacks, and you're just kind of looking around. When I go to funerals of people that are in their 70s and 80s, I just sit there thinking the whole time, I can't get out of my head, I'm thinking like they have to be thinking, 
I, I, I may be tomorrow. I may be next. Like we're, all, I'm a little bit on borrowed time, and like this, like that's all they do. I've talked to some older people in their 70s and 80s, and they'll say, like this is this is what I spend a lot of my time going to funerals. So if this is your life, um, here's all your life. Think through that. That's that's pretty quick. Even just this right here, right? Um, this parable, what Jesus wanted to show, it's not saying. Go and take your life and make it count for something incredible. Go take your life and make it meaningful. So a lot of people, they, they want to take that and teach that from this parable. Go and make your life meaningful. And this is not what that parable is about, meaningful. Um, but this parable, Jesus is not saying to go and make your life meaningful. This is completely di- a different idea he's pointing to. It flips everything. It's not how could I take my one life and make it so meaningful and purposeful. That's another parable. That's another lesson. But what if there's something of such immeasurable worth, something of such immeasurable value and treasure, that once you discover it, this other thing, that you would joyfully take your life and throw it away going, i got to have that. I, I, I give it up. I give it up. I walk away because that is more significant. And so again, older adults, is that your version of Christianity? For you young people, you're being lied to, deceived by media. Adults also, but especially young, younger people think through, you've got this one thing, this treasure that Jesus is pointing to, to live for. So he's not saying, hey, go, go make your life meaningful and purposeful. That's kind of actually selfish sometimes. It, it's fine, but what we're going to see here. If you get this, this paradigm shift, what if one thing, this treasure, that I would sell off all of my life for would be worthy of living for? And and I'd sell it off in a moment and enjoy it because as you get older, you're going to realize that really a, a better picture is your life doesn't look like that. Really, biblically, between my thumbs, that's about your life. Your life is a vapor. You're under 20, you're probably going, it doesn't seem like it. And we all know sometimes sometimes it seems like you know, days or years go on for a long time. It seems like life is going slow. And then there's times, if you get to a certain age, you go, man, five years seems like a weekend. 10 years, 15, 20 years seems like just a week passed and it's already gone. So I would say Jesus is trying to show, I, Jesus, is saying, your life is a vapor. So what would you spend that life on? If that's your life, what would be so worthy of trading in your life, not believing the lies, the deceit, the the media, the, the temptations, to give your life to one single purpose, and that you would sell it in a moment to gain what he's offering? That's what he's bringing up to here. And, and in doing that, guess what? You actually find meaning. And you find purpose in this hidden treasure that Jesus is talking about. So um, I want to suggest that that big idea, that, that that is what he's trying to bring out to us, this one greatest treasure. And we're going to see that um, in these, these uh, parables. And so let me read these, um, and then we're going, to, we're going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll uh, dive off into this. So in, in 1344... Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the, pair, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Father, we confess that we search, we desire, we look for, we pursue so many things. And Jesus is uncovering and revealing something about your kingdom and about you, God alone, that's worthy of a life pursuit. I pray that you would open young people's eyes. I pray that you would open believers, older people's eyes to see you as the greatest treasure. I pray that you would change us and transform us to where we are truly living for this one single purpose, one single glory. It's yours alone. Help us to see that. Open our eyes, soften our hearts in the way that only you can do. In your name we pray. Amen. So in looking at that, we, at my age, I may trip over that three or four times, so you guys know that I have to move it. Um, as we look at that, um, I, I want you to see the things, three words that we're, really, we're going to really focus on here. Three main words, um, and, and those words um, I'll get to in just a second. The, the, the bigger point of this is, is that there is something of such surpassing, immeasurable, intrinsic value that any person who comes across it would sell all that they have to attain and, and have possession of it. So it's not just about one single object's value, that, that is a huge part of it, but he's also teaching us about something inside of us. Notice what he's doing. He's playing on our desires. He, he's not just talking about, I'm just the most significant thing to live for. He's also saying, in the mix of that, your hearts, are you looking at that, at looking at me as the most significant thing to live for? So he's, he's playing on our desires also, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But this key idea comes out about desire. What is it that you desire? He, he's playing on that. These, these are three good words, positive words. It's not warning words like some of the parables. He's talking about someone who discovers something. He's talking about in your joy, selling everything off that you thought was good because this has surpassing value. And so what a beautiful thing that joy, Jesus lays out here. There's something greater to live by. So the main point that I have is God himself is most revealed in the person of Christ it is the ultimate supreme treasure worthy of giving your whole life over to him. So God himself, most revealed in the person of Christ, is the ultimate supreme treasure worthy of giving your whole life over to him. Now, if you grasp that, and you grasp that idea of the kingdom, specifically the king who makes the kingdom so valuable, that person would give up everything else to obtain it. So think through this. If you could go to heaven for five minutes or an hour. So a lot of people want to, you know, people have those thoughts like, wouldn't that be cool? And luckily, hey, we're it's, you know, in the 2000s, we had several people who wrote books about it. And they, they made some money off of it, and then it got discovered it was a fraud. And my whole point, my whole idea there is like, hey, we, we have someone that's done that. We've have John, John's done that, Paul's done that, they've got to see, Jesus is told about, so why do we need a, a modern version of that? But anyway, if you were to be able to go, do you think it would change you? You're in your struggle of sanctification. You're living this life, all these things. And if you got taken up to the third heaven where, where God's abode is, would it change you? 
Probably not. This is the reality. And the reason for that is indwelling sin. So one thing we should know is that's how powerful indwelling sin is because we have had someone tell us about it. We do know what God wanted us to know enough that God said this is enough for them to know about heaven um, because that, that's all they need to know. And still, we still struggle with indwelling sin. We don't need a seven-year-old boy to tell us what it's like. And so five seconds or 10 seconds into eternity after you've passed away, once you go through death, that threshold, that first waking five to 10 seconds, how many people are going to realize then what they should have been living their whole life for? That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Five or 10 seconds in, were you living your life, this one small vapor of a life for the kingdom and for me? Um, So this big idea of desire comes out. What will you wish you would have spent more time on? Uh, More time at the office? More time um, on investing in retirement? More impressive positions or, or possessions? Your, your lineup of the cars that you had, that, that the house that you had, the address, um, the status that you had. What, 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 what? Ten seconds in, what's going to be impressive? And you guys know, I, I sometimes we got eleven-year-old boys with a, a piece of leather that has air in it, and and, and for a few moments, I, I'm all caught up, going, "This is so huge! This is what? Why did you let that guy tackle you? All you had to do is so something so small and insignificant, especially when you consider, you know, this. Like, hey, Sankey, you can calm down. It's all right. Like, it's not. He's eleven. He's 11, like it's not life-changing, like it's not world-shaping, right? And so we do those things with, with lots of things. You can laugh at me and think, I'm just really passionate about that. But 10 seconds in, I'm not going to be thinking about how many tackles someone missed or how many catches they had or, or how, how famous that, that this team becomes or something. Nothing like that. You're thinking through, man, what was it that I lived for? So this key idea of desire, it's not wrong. Um, These three words that Jesus brings up, treasure, discovery, and joy. Um, Treasure is this immeasurable worth and value. What he talks about in this first parable. In the second parable, the pearl of greatest value. Um, Notice he has this idea of discovery, something that you would discover and that it's so worthy and valuable that you would go on and you'd sell everything else that you've attained to be able to have this of surpassing worth and value. And then notice he speaks of desire, joy, in your joy, a beautiful thing. So he places right in front of us um, this idea and this challenge, this invitation to search out what you treasure most. Now, if you're like me, you may have grown up where um, maybe you were kind of taught, and sometimes this happens in the church, that all desires are bad. And no one would say it like that, but if you're not careful, we begin to kind of think like, oh, any kind of desire is just bad. Oh, if you're desiring that, it's bad. If you desire that, it's bad. If you desire that, it's bad. And that, that shouldn't be the way. God doesn't frame Christianity that way. Sometimes we're just taught that, um, where, where any kind of desire is bad. God created us as worshipers. So think through Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. That's desire. He, he was laying out first. I want you to di- desire something with the strongest might, with all of your power, with all of your will, with all of your strength, with all of your might, all of your heart, all of your mind. There's one thing. Love me with all of that. That's a great desire. 
We'll be experiencing that in heaven. The, the second one, uh, don't make an idol for yourself. Don't bow down and worship these other things. And so what we learn there is desire is not bad in God's mind. What, what happens is we learn that he created us as um, pleasure seekers. What we do is we spend our time focused on pleasuring in things that are of lesser value, sometimes even sinful things. So um, it does not surprise God that we have hearts full of strong inclinations for worship of things. He also knows that in his creation, the elements of creation, there are things that are going to be tempting us. So, so if, you, if you haven't expanded your understanding of that, you need to think through that. Even Adam and Eve and every human since then, here's all of this. It's all good. I placed this tree here, and I'm telling you it's evil, and it will lead you away from me. God did that. You have to, if you understand the sovereignty of God, he did that. And so you need to think on a deeper level of what that looks like. Um, he knows that the creation will, will be tempting at times. Creation elements will be tempting. Um, he knew that about you, and he knew that about me. So what we have to do is we have to stop, stop playing peekaboo with God. He sees your heart. He knows what you're drawn to. He sees the pattern things that you keep going to. And we try to sit over here and try to like play peekaboo, like maybe he doesn't see me. We're just doing hide and seek and peekaboo, peekaboo. God's going, hey, I see it all. I, I know, I know in five days what you're going to be struggling with. I know what it is. And so think of the patience and the grace and the love as he's poured out the, these, these exhortations and these warnings, and he's going, I know all those things about you. Be aware of those things. Or are you assessing where your heart's at with those things? So assessing the heart. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop thinking that God doesn't know the things that you struggle with. Get to the point where it's a maturity of being convicted about those things, admitting those things, and asking him for transformation asking the Holy Spirit for help. So Ezekiel 36, that I will enable you to walk in these things. I will empower you to walk in these things instead of hiding it and thinking that he doesn't see it. And by our good behaviors, he just won't notice. So assess the heart. Let that bring conviction, confession, and then repentance that leads to transformation and renewal. And then if we do that process, it leads to more rest in him and enjoyment of him. And that's what he's expressing here in this, this passage. So things in the cre created order that, that he knows that we would enjoy. Um, nature. For a lot of people, just being outside in nature. Uh, oceans, whether you're a mountain person, you're an ocean person. You're a forest person, um, you're a desert person. Um, those things can have the potential for us being drawn to them where we would exchange worship in God's design for worship of God's creation. So we begin to elevate elements of his creation. Relationships. Um, it can be relationships that were, if you're not married and this person, you begin to idolize them. They're going to be, they're going to solve all your problems. They're going to finally bring all this fulfillment and finally make me feel, man, we, we just elevated something beyond what it can hold capacity to. Um, those relationships, sometimes our human bodies, um, the, the healthcare uh, market, billions upon billions, because why? We want to look good. We want to feel good about ourselves. We're worried about our physical body so much, so it's a huge industry. All of those things. Um, 
the, 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 the relational aspects of physical intimacy, deep belonging and trust in this person, just this emotional connection, a physical and a spiritual connection that God designed in marriage even. Sometimes people, without realizing, they put so much weight on marriage itself. I remember Jamie and I were married two months and we're in Northwest Arkansas and we're in this church plant and we're in small group and one of the, uh, some kind of question come out and we're sitting there and, and she began to share how uh, they, they asked some question about, you know, uh, other things that you look to and she just said like two months into marriage like yeah I think that um, one of the things I'm learning is that you know Sankey will never be the total fulfillment as a husband I thought man this is an awkward place to bring that out she hasn't shared that with me personally but she's just saying you're a two on a scale of ten but then she rounded it out with um, Jesus is always going to be that for me and I think I was looking at marriage like that would happen but I can't look to Sankey for that. And so then I was like, oh, well, that's, that's good. You know, I, I'll take a three and a half. And so in that, that's a beautiful picture that, that sometimes we, we just elevate things. We don't mean to. Um, possessions, things that our eyes see, they seem to offer more of that pleasure we're naturally seeing. God says, and look at this, he's not mad at, he's not mad at you. When you enjoy a new truck or a, a, a new house or new clothes or a, a new relationship, he's not mad at you. Going like, see, see, you did it again. No, notice how gracious he's going. I knew this would be good for you. I knew that you would enjoy this. I knew this would even be fulfilling in some way. Be careful. Don't let that turn into an idol. Be aware of your heart's inclination on that. And so again, this idea of desire, he, he put those desires in us for those type of things. And then he gives us things, things that are good. And sometimes we just elevate them so high and we want to put so much worth and there are things that can't hold that type of satisfaction and so that's what we're seeing here he's going hey there's something that's so satisfying that you would take all of that and you would throw in the trash if you could inherit this and so um beautiful picture so it's not that we love too much it's that we love the right things too little that's what he's bringing out you love the right things too little and you have a tendency to love the wrong things too much. You're elevating things and attaching affections to them, and they can't fulfill. So consider this idea. What is it that you truly treasure? Is Christ in his own category so distinct that you would trade off everything else? So, so that's that, that first idea of just treasure. Um, then discovery. He says that after he discovers this, he sells it all to gain it. Um, I, I clicked on a couple of things. I was looking at different uh, people's views and interpretations. And so I clicked on this one thing. And I hadn't heard of this guy, but it's a huge church and everything. And so he taught this. And he taught this parable as um, Jesus is the guy in the field. Jesus is walking. And Jesus kind of stubs his toe and discovers this treasure. And guess what the treasure was? He, the theme he started with is God loves you so much. So the, what he taught was the treasure is us. We are the hidden treasure. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, and people are just clapping and amen. And I was like, oh wow. Like heaven's going to be just big mirrors of me, I guess. And so the whole idea there that like Jesus kind of stumbled upon, and he said that was what evangelism was, was when Jesus kind of, he doesn't know which people are going to be his. So he's kind of going around this field, kicking over cans. And then some of those cans end up being his. Was, and so that's the treasure in the field. That was that. So I want to be clear in case people are listening online. That is not our interpretation of that. In case they 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 you know fast forward to that point and they hear, is this what he's teaching? That is not the right interpretation. That's what people walk away with sometimes. 
But there's this idea of discovery. What, what are the things that the world lives for? Things that the world says is worthy of giving your life to. It could be riches. It could be um, a lifestyle of freedom. A lot of things that we hear, it's more on that idea of, oh, it's not just these possessions. It's actually freedom. Freedom of, of your own autonomy. If you can get to this place in security of wealth where you have freedom, I can promise you, I can promise you, like you, you work that, that 25 years out and then you get 50, retire early, freedom, it's, it's not going to be as fulfilling as what you thought. You know the people, you see the people. I'm terrified. Like when I see people that retire in our, in our old neighborhood, you know what they're doing? They're in flower beds. Like that's not what, or walking a dog with gloves on to pick up the dog's poop. That is not what I call satisfaction and glory and like that's the fulfillment I'm looking for, being bent over sweating at eight in the morning, digging in dirt. Now, even if you love flower beds and stuff like that, or walking your dog, if there were aliens or even just angels and they see us doing that, it looks like the dogs rule the planet and we're just following them around waiting for them to use the bathroom. And so that's not what I think of as like, oh, the freedom of time, freedom of schedule, freedom of all that. That's not the securing thought that Jesus is going, this is what will be life fulfilling. Um, riches, security of the future, your body, your looks, appeal to others. Jesus is saying there's a way of living in which you would sell off everything else and trade that in. So Paul, he understood this right. Remember, and so remember Paul in um, Philippians there, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he just went through a whole suitcase full of um, righteousness in the flesh and things that he, he was saying, if there's anyone who could boast in the flesh, it would be me. And he went through his old Jewish heritage, all the, the status level and all those things. He goes, and I, I consider all of that rubbish. I would throw it all away. Notice what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the it. Paul's saying, everything that I had, everything, it looked so good spiritually, even in God's eyes, it looked so good spiritually, or what we assumed was in God's eyes, and it's nothing compared to the surpassing worth. I would trade it all in for gaining Christ and knowing him, being found in him. So that's the it that Paul discovers there. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him. That's the it that Paul sees and says, that's what I'm living for. Um, so thinking through this parable, um, is there such a strong desire for Christ and his kingdom that you actually have this idea of even sacrifice in your ideas for the kingdom? Now, sacrifice is not a word that we usually think about a lot in just in American life. Um, most of us have, we, we may think we sacrifice it in different ways, but when you think through sacrifice, I mean, so like even our giving in a church, that, that, that's kind of a, a minimum there. Uh, not attending, um, uh, not attending, or I'm sorry, regular attendance, is, that, that's not really sacrifice, right? That, that's, if you love something, you would want to be a part of that. If you love something, you would want to give that, that would be natural, um, even those ideas of giving time to people, helping out, that, that's not necessarily sacrifice, right? We, we know all over the world, horrific things are going on where people are sacrificing everything. If you've you know, kept up just politically and in the world, the global economy, things that are going on where it's not, it's hurting their retirement account. It's an area got bombed and they're sitting on rubble with little bitty children going, we don't have electricity or heat. It's turning wintertime and we don't have food either. 
Like, that's what's going on in the world. And so sometimes we feel like we're, we're sacrificing just to give up some time for, for church or for what we give or, for, hey, we sacrificed a little time and went and did this to help these people. I'm concerned about the American church in that. Um, this is very far from our understanding. Um, some circles in, in American Christianity easily get held up and just worried about, you know, w- which translation? Was that the, did he read the NIV? Did he do the ESV? Did he do the New King James? Like, we'll get held up on that, right, in our church culture. We'll get worried about, did, did, did we sing a song where that, that was the, 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 oh, did we sing a song that we, we shouldn't have sang? We're getting held up on that when, when, when all these other things are going on, and I feel sometimes I feel like uh, our little Christian subcultures and uh, add social media and all these things and all these little blogs, and you can just spend hours and hours and hours on a little rabbit trail. And I feel like in our small groups, and, and not, I'm not, not, not talking specifically about Sojourn Church, I'm saying I feel like sometimes Jesus would be in small groups. He's like, hey, I notice you're, you're, you're talking a lot and spending a lot of hours on that. Hey, go sell everything you have. Because you're, you're thinking that spiritual astuteness means... Which version of the Bible? You're being self-righteous. Go sell everything. You want a heart test? NASB, New King James Version, King James Version. The message, it's, it's all okay. Go sell everything you have. There's a heart test. Stop your self-righteousness. You want to argue about what song or what, what, what version of this? Go learn what sacrifice and mercy means. You want a heart test? But, but, but we, but we, but but I read some stuff that said this. That's what we do. He's going. I'll, I'll cut right through it, and that's what he did over and over and over with people. That's what he continued to do. Why can't you look over people who need love and mercy to argue about something so small and tiny? Because you say that you bought into this kingdom life, and the king is saying, "I've showed you what this looks like. I've died for you. I've redeemed you. I want you to live this way." And sometimes in our culture, it's just this comfortable thing to sit back and like intellectually be challenged by this blog and this blog and this writer and this. And we really don't go into the depth of it. I, I watch a two-minute video and I read a, I read two paragraphs, and now I think I'm knowledgeable and an expert on that subcategory in in a Christian circle. And it's just like that we're we're missing the kingdom. It's right in front of us, and so we've got to be careful of that. I mean, I'm, again, I think Sojourn's pretty healthy. I've seen us love on people, show mercy repeatedly. Um, our first two or three years, we're having lots of different um, difficult situations, and people just stop what they were doing, open their home, continue to share the gospel. And so that's a huge strength, but we've got to continue to be that way. Consider what kind of heart devotion or sacrifice your life is exhibiting. Think through that. The third one he brings up there is joy. In his joy. So this is all about desire. What's interesting in this parable is that Jesus is not teaching us that our desires are a bad thing. Like I said earlier, how much of the church and how many Christians have made that the point, that, that any desires are bad? Um, how often are Christians even told they're afraid of desires? Al Mohler, uh, president of the seminary I went to, he said, he said, too many Christians speak of Christianity as a renunciation of desire. But this is profoundly untrue. Christianity is not about the denial of desires, but about the denial of the wrong desires in order to turn to a greater love, a greater desire, a greater obsession. And he was actually talking about this parable when he talked about that. Um, C.S. Lewis, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, 
but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. So I'll say that if you're a believer and you've been walking through your Christianity, you're trying to do everything right, and you're trying to do all these things, sometimes we can just get caught. Some of that is just stacking up mud pies. Stacking up mud pies instead of enjoying the king and his kingdom. And sometimes our Christianity has just been built on, hey, did you pray this prayer quickly? Ask Jesus into your heart. Nothing about the joy that he could bring. Nothing about the, the, the eternal joy that he can have. Remember, already in the kingdom, but not yet fully. Joy, but all kinds of evil around us. Joy for the kingdom as we're facing difficult things, trials, hurtful, painful things but it's not consummated fully yet. So yes, it is here. So those guys would agree. What if you're spending all your life, your hours, stacking up mud pies instead of investing in the kingdom? And again, I, I saw a couple people, and, and this can be a significant, like you, you could do a little bit of application on this. He's not even talking about giving. He's not even making the point about every Christian should sell all you own. That's not even the point of it, because that, if you follow that, that's wrong interpretation, because you can't buy the kingdom, right? You don't want to get into that thinking where, you know, if I do sell off everything, then, I, then I'll earn my way. That, that's not what he's teaching. It's about the discovery of this thing that's greater than you could ever imagine. So this idea of Psalm 16, 8 through 11, soul-satisfying, heart-enjoying, whole-being rejoicing. Notice he's offering greater joy, greater affections, greater treasure. So Psalm 16, I think I might have it on the slide. I have set the Lord always before me. So Larry, I've told you guys, so we're going through that. Train us for eternity. Sometimes it's helpful. Get a table. Go. You should be going, resting, learning how to have some Sabbath time. Here, Lord, here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm stressed about. I'm stressed about these things. I'm worried about these things. Here, here are these people's lives. Some really um, things that are going on. They're heavy, all these things. What about this, Lord? What about this, Lord? Set those on the table and then just, just admit to him. So I confess to you, my heart's anxious about that. I can't even fix all those things. God, I, I'm going to move those to the side now. I'm setting the Lord before me. You own all that. I'm resting in you. I can't fix that. I'm going to rest in you. I set the Lord before me. Notice what he's saying there. Always before him, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. Because I do this and set the Lord before me, beforehand I set all these other things up there in front of me, and my heart wasn't glad. It was worried and sickened and angry and frustrated and weary. So, no, 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 those are lies. That's not the reality. I'm not letting my feelings dictate truth. I'm letting truth dictate to my feelings. So now, Lord, I'll set you before me, and now my heart is glad. So he's speaking of joy. He's speaking of emotions and feelings. My whole being, this is huge. Like, we, we just read over it. Whole being to, to the Israelites was a huge thing. It was, it was their internal, it was actually just their guts, their, 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 their deepest level of heart and mind and all that. And that's what they determined with their guts. All of them, my whole being rejoices. It speaks of joy. My flesh also, my physical body also dwells secure. 
So do you see here God affirming through the writer that there are these God-given, God-inspired aspects of humanhood that God placed inside of us? Just in that first couple of lines. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So it's all wrapped up in Christ. That's a reference that we know in the New Testament comes back to Christ. You'll not let your Holy One see decay, meaning the three-day resurrection. You will not let that happen. So that is tied to. So this writer is, is putting their rest in Jesus before they even know Jesus. A thousand years before, they're going, so, so this God that I placed before me, it's Jesus, and I don't know what he looks like. I didn't know God was going to send his son. I definitely didn't know he was going to die on the cross. I'm looking for a Messiah, a militaristic warrior guy who's going to come and restore the kingdom, and God's going, it's this guy of grace and mercy and love. And then he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So you, God, you make known to me the path of life. And I think even as believers, here's what we do. Recognize, lived a bad life, got some sin, asked Jesus into my heart, raised my hand, bowed my head, uh, now I'm part of the church, and now I've still got this life trajectory, this plan, this lifeline that I'm going to go on. God, now will you come and bless that? I'll make it a little holier. I won't cuss as much. I won't be as mean. I won't steal. I won't cheat on my wife. But here's my life plan. Here's my life trajectory. Will you make that happen? And that's not what David's saying here. This, I don't know if it's David. This psalmist is saying, not that I've got my path, come and bless it and make it even more comfortable and worldly, but you are the one that in following you, Lord, you're going to give me the path. I don't even know what that looks like yet. So if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you see that. Some decisions, you, you can make a, a 25-year plan, and he just doesn't go by your plan. He doesn't go by your rule. You can take lots of time in prayer and seeking him, and, and it ends up like three years later. He like puts a curveball in there. All kinds of things like that. And so um, you make known to me the path of life. And it's good. It's beautiful. It's more beautiful than we could imagine. You make your path known to me. In following and in treasuring Christ, we find the true path. He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So his presence, there's fullness of joy. So what was Eden? What was the point of God killing an animal, providing a blood sacrifice and skins covering their shame? Eden, you're with me. It's just us. All I want for you is good. I want no harm to get. Oh, you did that. Slaughter an animal. Provide skins for shame and guilt. Hey, hey, I'm pursuing you. Come back. Come back. Because I want us together. I want us together. You're going to find joy in that. What was the main desire of God with Israel through bringing them out of Egypt? Through Mount Sinai. Through the Ten Commandments. Through through the tabernacle. Tabernacling with his people. Coming out of Egypt. I want you to worship me, my people, your God. The tabernacle, God with us. The cloud, the fire, God with us. All of those things. You're going to find delight in that. You're going to find pleasure in that. I'm telling you, this is where life is. His presence, his fullness of, his, his fullness of joy. What's the point of Joshua's conquest? A people, a land, a place for the presence of their God. The temple. David and Solomon's simple. Why sacrifices? Because you're sinful people separated. 
The sacrifice will bring me into your presence. Holiness is what I require. So if they didn't understand that those sacrifices weren't really covering sin, it was going to be Christ later on that covered their sin. But it was a picture for them. It was a shadow for us to to look and see. What was the point of Nehemiah's rebuild? The people of God worshiping in the presence of God. What was Christmas? What was Emmanuel? 400 years of silence from God. Now, God with us. And Jesus is ushering in and inaugurating God with us. Jesus is telling us, God is here already, but not yet fully. In your fullest joy will be found this. And this kingdom, this parable early on, he's saying, if you get a picture of this, you would want to completely give your life away for it. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What are we told repeatedly is at the right hand of the Father after he ascended. At your right hand, the psalmist says, pleasures forevermore. Jesus in the parable going, I'm the pleasure. I'm the hidden treasure. Pleasure, joy forevermore. It's me. You're going to find that in me. And why do we get the benefit of all this? Why such rich recipients? Remember Hebrews 12. I think I have a slide for it. Since we're surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set for us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Mighty, powerful, loving King Jesus not only ushered us in toward the kingdom, but he paid for our ticket to get in and walks with us every day. He also didn't say, pray this prayer, you get the ticket, and then do it on your own. He says, I will be with you every single day if you understand this kingdom and and my kind of king. Through his sanctifying work, patient, slow sanctifying work, until he brings us faithfully to the kingdom's full consummation, and then he glorifies us. So think through this. The parable that we first saw, the seed in the soil, hearts that humbly receive the word and are saved. The second parable, the weeds, he tells true believers that there is going to be evil and sin around you. So believers in the world, be prepared for that. Rest in me. Trust in me. I'm faithful in that. I'm going to bring out a harvest of righteousness that will last eternally. And then parable three with the treasure and the pearls, he's saying there's something so intrinsically worthy, soul-satisfying and joy-producing at the deepest level that if we could, we would give away everything, our entire life, to obtain it. It is him in his kingdom. Later on, another one of the parables, after we see those pictures, Jesus paints that, that new picture teaching about faithfulness of his people. And he, he talks about living their lives, serving the kingdom, his kingdom. And, and at the end of that, he brings these comforting, sought-after words that he says early on in this parable, that, that this idea of this, this kingdom. And then at the parable uh, he gets to later in Matthew 25, the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, I will now set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So what he introduced early on with this parable, he's saying when we get to heaven, that would be the the response. That he would say, enter into the joy of your master. So as we're closing, we've got great news. Um, What Jesus has disclosed to us in this early expansive parable is what is offered to us each and every day for all eternity 
But it is the parable calling us to live out what Psalm 16 will be experienced daily in this life, but also in the life to come. I've set the Lord always before me, all of eternity in heaven. And we have the chance to live for that now. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Think of that in a sanctified, glorified state. God's going, here's this for while you're down there, and then I'm going to fulfill that fully in the consummated kingdom. My flesh dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence for all eternity is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forever. That, that's an eschatological future situation that's brought up in Psalm that Jesus alludes to and points to several times, saying this is what this would be lived out here on this earth. We would never have enough to sell, never have enough to earn to purchase this. All, um, everyone on this planet, if we, if we took all of our wealth, all of our good deeds, all the things that we could possess, and we add it all up, it wouldn't be enough to get one person into the kingdom. And yet Jesus offers it freely because of the cost that he paid on the cross. So we have a great opportunity to um, just see the beauty that he offers, this joy, this treasure, um, all of these things in himself. So as I pray, um, we'll prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for um, your idea and your offering of the kingdom to us. We would never have been good enough. We, have ne- we would never have earned our way. We couldn't have bought our way. If we did sell all of our possessions and sold our life, we would still be unworthy. We would still be weak. We would still be desperate for you. So we pray that you would help us to understand the depth of this parable in these coming days. Next few weeks, would you, would you bring this alive, like this seed that's planted, and then you bring it to life, not just at a sermon's point, but cause young people to think through what are they living for, to think through what would it be like living a life sold out to this Christ? What would it be like for adults, even in adults who have been walking in the church for years, to be sold out to this idea? We pray that you would allow us grace in that, Father. Would you allow the, the Spirit to teach us where we're falling short in that? We thank you for um, the Spirit that comes and brings comfort if we feel overwhelmed by that. We worship you now as we go into the Lord's Supper. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to give you um, just a little bit of time to think through not only what we heard, but as we go into the Lord's Supper, we practice um, open communion. So if you're, as long as you're not under church discipline at another church that you're running from, um, and if you're a, a true believer, uh, baptized, and you're able to partake of the Lord's Supper, um, you're open to do that with us. We have open communion. If you're not a believer, if you're a young person or a child or an adult, and you really don't know where you stand with Christ, we want to guard the table and kind of fence it off and say, this is sacred to us. Not because we're holy, but because he's holy. And so we want to guard that table and say, um, don't partake in any manner that is unworthy of that. And so we want to guard that and say, partake of Christ first. If you're, if you're a child, you're a young person, put your faith in Christ. Partake of Christ. And don't partake of the cup yet. Don't partake of the bread yet. Um, what we've heard today is Jesus offering this kingdom, this joy, this treasure. And so we would say it's the greatest thing to live for. We do it weekly so we can stare and gaze at the gospel 
and, and these elements. And so I'm going to pray over the elements, and then I'll uh, let you guys go towards the Lord's Supper. Father, we are again um, just brought before the cross, brought before everything we've seen and known about Jesus, his life that he lived, his righteousness, his, his perfect submission to your will, his perfect obedience and righteousness that is applied to us in some mysterious way. And we're in awe of that. So as we take his um, body and blood, we, we take that with a seriousness and a sobering reality, but we also want to celebrate. We want to rejoice that it's not based upon how we, how we did last week. It's not based upon how good we did or how bad we did, but because of Christ, we can stand in him, that we're hidden in him. We pray that you'd help us to um, learn more and more about that each week. We thank you for your idea of the Lord's Supper, and now we do this in worship of you. In your name we pray. Amen.